are continuing in our series, Dear Suburban Church. Look at this ancient letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And we're noting the remarkable number of parallels between the issues that they were facing and the issues that the church in modern-day suburban America are facing. In a lot of ways, we're actually struggling with some of these things more than they even did. As Pastor Chris reminded us last week, this book, this, this letter was actually a disciplinary letter. He, he was writing them to say, hey, you're supposed to be example setters on what it means to be mature followers of Christ, but you're acting like spiritual babies. You're acting like infants. Stop it. Knock it off. He opens up the, the letter by pointing to an overall theme that runs then through the entire letter, this idea of unity, this idea of being the body of Christ, the temple of God, the people of God, or more accurately, the book is about their disunity about their inability to actually do this, about the ways they divided over different teachers, different freedoms, different restrictions, different beliefs about the afterlife, different gifts, and on and on and on. There's division and there's fighting. It's tearing them apart. It's destroying the church, but it's also destroying the witness that church has to a watching world there in the city of Corinth. The letter contains some pretty serious warnings about the consequences of this disunity. The stakes of the relational fracture. You may remember from early on in the series, before we got into this little semi-series that we're doing right now, this idea of these words from chapter 3. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God lives in you. God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Boof, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that sounds like some pretty harsh language. It says, we are together the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, the place that is meant to mirror and manifest the presence, the power, the beauty, the grace of God. The temple who incarnationally manifests, embodies the nature, the character, the movement, the action of God. And Paul says, God will destroy anyone who destroys that temple. And he's writing that to the church. But even... In that, it's not so harsh, but I think even in that, it's a picture of how much God loves his children. How much Christ loves his bride. How much the shepherd loves the sheep. Like our parents who do anything to protect their child, God's love compels him to act. And I think there's a lot of hope contained in these couple of verses. As well, in these two short verses from the beginning of the letter, it says these words, that we together of the temple of God, and the Spirit of God lives in us. It's a place to write that in your notes. We together are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God lives in us. We don't need to do this alone. We're not supposed to do this alone. We have each other. We need each other. And even better, the very Spirit of God, the same Spirit who hovered over the waters at creation, the same Spirit who, who resurrected Christ from the dead, who poured himself out in Acts 2 with tongues of flames, that same Spirit lives in us. Which brings us to the little mini-series we've been in the last couple of weeks. If the Holy Spirit is so central and essential to us being the temple of God, the people of God, the church of God, then we've taken the last two couple of weeks to ask the questions, do we understand the Holy Spirit? And maybe more importantly, do we experience the Holy Spirit? Which brings us to kind of week three of this little mini series that we're doing on the person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. My grandfather, um, Grandpa Peterson, Leonard Peterson, was a godly man. He spent his entire life uh, as part of uh, First Baptist 
Sister Bay, I believe, uh, was proud that he never let alcohol cross his lips his entire life. I mean, he was this very devout, godly man. And when he was about 95 years old, I remember him coming to my father and saying, I just read this book about the Holy Spirit. I didn't know there was such a thing. I've missed out on so much. And while that sounds kind of crazy, I mean, we talk about it, but I know that's not that different than my experience growing up. We, we don't experience, we don't know and understand and be in relationship with this Holy Spirit. I want to invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible at home, we would love for you to go to BibleGateway.com is a great resource, or Bible.com, and they've got some great online uh, Bibles as well. Chapter 12, it's interesting. What's interesting, you might ask? I can't find that on my page anymore. All right. It's interesting. Uh, Chris mentioned last week that really chapter 12 and 13 and 14 were really all written together as one piece, right? They, they were meant to be read together. It sounds a little silly to say this, but it's good to be reminded that those little verse numbers and chapter numbers and little notes that headers over each section, those weren't in the original text. Those were added much, much later. And while they're helpful sometimes for our sake in studying, there's also a tendency sometimes to divide these chapters into the different sections. Like they're not, like they're standalone pieces, right? So for instance, you say like, well, the first part of this section is all about the spirit of chapter 12. And then the second part is about acting like the body and valuing all the parts. And 1 Corinthians 13 is really all about something that should be read at weddings. And it's sort of sappy and romantic and totally unattainable, unrealistic in real marriage. Right? I mean, that's how we tend to sort of break these things up. But in fact, this is exactly the opposite of what Paul is trying to do. He opens chapter 12 and chapter 13 and 14 like this. Now, dear brothers and sisters, regarding your question about the special abilities the Spirit gives you, I don't want you to misunderstand this. Apparently, the Holy Spirit, and specifically the special gifts, the special abilities that the Spirit gives them, have become one more issue for the church to divide over, to experience disunity over. Paul goes on to say this, There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it's the same God who does the work in all of us. This isn't primarily actually about the Spirit. It's about unity, right? It says, Paul, yes, Paul says, there are different gifts and different kinds of serving different works, but it's all the same God. It's all the same Spirit in all of it. We're different, but united. And he goes even even greater clarity. Verse 7, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. Why is it given? So we can help each other, right? To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. The same Spirit gives great faith to another. And to someone else, the one Spirit gives the gift of healing. He gives one person the power to perform miracles and another the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another spirit. And still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages, while another is given the ability to interpret what's being said. Chris, last week, uh, recalled the story of Pentecost. When, when these believers had gathered, these disciples had gathered, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, and they had tongues of flames. And, and there were all these people that had come to the city of Jerusalem because it was Pentecost. So they're on this, this migration, this pilgrimage to come to the city, and they were all from different countries. And suddenly these disciples were speaking in 
the language of all these people. How are you doing this? How are they speaking the language of our of our country? And Chris speculated that one possibility is that these foreigners were given the gift of interpretation. And that's absolutely possible. The text doesn't say. But I think it's also possible that in this moment, the Holy Spirit knew exactly what gift was needed in that moment to build up the body, to, to, to demonstrate the power of God, the unity of his saints, by giving them the ability to speak in languages that they didn't even know. In order to, to demonstrate God's power, but to demonstrate his character to these foreigners, that he would do this remarkable, miraculous deed to reach them. We didn't talk much about spiritual gifts when I was growing up in church. But when we did, it just sort of felt like churchifying our natural abilities. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, if someone was a really good communicator, we'd say, well, they have the spiritual gift of communication. It's like, oh, or maybe they're just a good talker, <laughs> right? I mean, if somebody's six foot five and could throw a football accurately 40 yards, no one's like, he has a spiritual gift of football. <laughs> no, we say like, yeah, God made him in a way that he's really, really good at this. We could celebrate that. It is a gift from God, but that's not the same as a spiritual gift, Right? I think there's actually something to be said about spiritual gifts might actually be distinguished by the gifts and abilities that are outside, that defy our natural abilities, our natural tendencies. I don't think I have had the lifelong gift of healing. In fact, I would say that I'm, I've been lifelong more like skeptic of healing. But I can tell you, there have been a couple of distinct times in my ministry and in my life where I have feebly and with shaking knees gone before God and said, God, you've, you've, you said that we can ask. You've, you've demonstrated that you do heal. And I've seen, I've told you some of these stories of remarkable healings that cannot be explained any other way. And I think it's because God used my broken, feeble, skeptical, I'm obviously not doing this because I think I've got some natural gift. It was all about what God was doing. And sometimes we think, we tend to think that the gift that we are given by the Holy Spirit is a gift for life, and that's our gift. You know, but maybe consider this. The Holy Spirit knows us. He knows how he created each of us. He knows how he wired us. He knows each of our strengths and each of our weaknesses. The Holy Spirit knows the needs of the larger body. The Spirit knows the immediate and ever-changing needs of a community of Christ followers. And while the gift of the Holy Spirit to us from Christ is forever the gift of that Holy Spirit, the gifts of that Holy Spirit to us might be given for very specific instances, opportunities, or needs. Right? The, the goal of the Holy Spirit and the goal of these gifts is to meet the needs of the body. And the role of the church is to receive the Spirit's gifts to build up that body. Paul continues, next verse, verse 11. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. I would present to you that as the needs of the church changes, as the needs of the church change, perhaps the Holy Spirit gives new gifts to new people to meet these new needs, like that Pentecost event. And it takes all of us sharing of the gifts we've been given in order to build up the body. Paul illustrates this with the metaphor of the body. It will sound familiar, but again, hear this not in context of a standalone. Hear this in the context of what he just has said. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, meaning slave owners. 
we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share that same spirit. Different, but one. Diverse, yet united. Because they've all received baptism by water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They are all unified. They were dividing over these like doctrinal minutiae. Nothing, you know? And he says to them, are you kidding me? These much more divisive issues like race and gender and freedom and power and money and status, slavery. Those are defeated. Those are trumped by the unity, the oneness of the Holy Spirit. Next verse. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, does that make it any less a part of the body? If the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? If the whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? Which on Sunday, I'm probably going to say some kind of joke about maybe you don't want to smell your brother sometimes because there's going to be kids in the room. I won't do that tonight. Oh, nuts, it's on camera. (laughs) Our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would it be if we only had one part? If there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. The, The simple and yet brilliant metaphor that Paul uses just immediately sort of disarms the, the competitive competitiveness and the disunity and the power struggle that had begun to fracture the church. In fact, the, the power structure is turned upside down. Next verse. In fact, some of the parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And, and the parts that we regard as less honorable are those that we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the most honorable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the body together with such extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. It's interesting. We we certainly have that culturally, right? People that have less dignity, that we are called to give a special honor, a special care, a special protection. Have any of you been doing the uh, the classroom that Chris has pointed to several times on Bible.com with Lucy Pepiat? Uh, she's wonderful. She's British. Everything sounds really smart. And essentially, she's going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through, just giving all this additional context of what they would have understand this letter to mean. She points out here that, that Paul is creating a sort of weird new hierarchy where the healthy, mature people of God are sort of flipping the old way, the human way, the cultural model, where the powerful and the strong and the flashier on top. And instead, they're bringing up the weakest, the lowest, the least honored, and they're putting them on top. Instead, treating them with special care, special attention, special honor. An upside-down model that recognizes that some of our weakest parts are indispensable. Sounds a lot like Jesus. And when we live like that, according to Paul, everyone wins. Next verse. This makes for harmony among the members so that all members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. Hashtag (laughs) win-win. Harmony is the opposite of disunity. I'm a musician, right? You know this. And I, I love that Paul says that the opposite of disunity isn't just unity. 
it's harmony. This idea of beauty, of being together. I love me some harmony. The musicians out there get it. Singing in perfect harmony, when you're not fighting for parts, when you're not trying to find parts, when it's just easy, and you're just singing, and the voices around you are supporting yours, and you're supporting theirs, and it sounds better, more than the three of you together, there is nothing better than that. It's easy, it's fun, it's beautiful. That's harmony. And that's what Paul says we can experience when we all do this. Something bigger than the sum of its parts. But there could be no me-first attitude among us if we're going to experience that sort of harmony. No divas who want to take the spotlight. But note that it's not just the promised harmony. He says all members care for each other. We all benefit when we all put the needs of others ahead of our own needs. But I think this is where we have the rub. This is where it collides with culture, where it collides with our natural human tendency. This is the sticking point, because it seems so countercultural, so kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world. My son Ian, uh, who's been coming here since he was a little kid, and now just finished his freshman year of college at the U, uh, we, he and I have always been able to have really great conversations, and he loves talking about deep stuff. He likes, He loves talking about this kind of stuff. And all of his life, he's heard this message that Christians need to put the needs of others ahead of themselves. And then he goes to the you and he's hearing all these messages about you got to take care of yourself first. You got to put yourself first. Cause if you're, you know, he's like, how do you, how do you manage that tension? Because I've seen people that put the needs of others so far ahead of themselves that they run themselves ragged and dry themselves out. And they are ministering from places of dryness and emptiness. And I've seen people who really take care of themselves well and are then able to. So how do you, how do you reconcile this? And it's it's been great to process these. And we've, you know, throughout the year, he and I have been able to have these conversations. And part of what occurred to me and what's come out of these conversations is that it's not so much about whether you put yourself first, you put them first. It's about why. It's about the motivation behind it. What are you, what are you trying to accomplish? And as it relates to this, let's, let's put it like this. There's a place to write this in your notes. The Spirit's gifts given to us are not primarily for us. Does that make sense? The, the, the gifts that the Spirit gives us, they're given to us, but they're not primarily for us. Yes, we each who are followers of Christ and have said yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord can receive, have received, will receive supernatural, Holy Spirit-given, God-empowered gifts. And we benefit from being a part of a community that's built on those gifts being shared, but they're given to us as individuals, primarily for us as a community, for the building of the larger body. Back in verse 7, Paul said, A spiritual gift is given to each of you so we can help each other. <laughs> given to help each other. Given to the lowercase us for the benefit of uppercase us. It's not unlike Philippians 2, one of those verses that, that Ian's heard his whole life. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourself. That is such a countercultural message. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. In the same way that we as followers of Christ are called to, to see everything, all the good gifts that are given, as, as coming from God. When God blesses us financially, we're to see those as, as God giving us those things. They're still, it's still God's resources that we are to steward. It's the same way here as Chris said. We are stewards of the Holy Spirit's gifts. We are given our spiritual gifts, not primarily for us, even though we benefit richly from them. Rather, we are stewards of the Holy Spirit's gifts for the sake of others. The gifts are God's. The community is God's. All of it is God's. How do we steward the gifts we are given to build up one another? That's the question. 
Verse 11, you'll remember, said, It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. But are we even aware of our gifts? Are we even looking for them? Are we asking for them? That was one of my biggest takeaways over the last couple of weeks as I've been studying this passage and, and the commentaries and listening to Chris. I think we tend to think of the Holy Spirit's gifts as being sort of arbitrary, assigned to each person, and we are sort of passive receivers. Like, to you I give the gift of great facial hair. <laughs> That's not a spiritual gift. Um, <laughs> but we're passive. We receive it. God decides we get it. It's there for the rest of our lives. We have no control over it. But that's not how Paul presents it. Instead, as Chris pointed out last week, there's a place to write this in your notes. We can seek specific spiritual gifts. Chapter 14, verse 12, it said this, and the same is true for you. Since you're so eager to have these special abilities the Spirit gives, seek those that will strengthen the whole church. Seek those. Seek those specifically because they are the ones that will build up the whole church. We aren't called to sit around passively waiting for an email from God, letting us know that our spiritual gift assessment is in, right? The Spirit is given to us. A couple weeks ago, Chris quoted Gordon Fee. Life in the Spirit is not passive, nor is obedience automatic. It's not sitting around waiting. It's actively moving, following the Holy Spirit. It's not just passive receiving. We make room for the Holy Spirit to move and to fill us, but we can also ask. We can ask for certain spiritual gifts that will strengthen the whole church. This is, this is more than just some lofty theological truth. Understanding cognitively who the Holy Spirit is. It's more even than, than, than experiencing in genuine and, and true ways who the Holy Spirit is and how we can be in relationship with the Holy Spirit. We also need to live this out in real, tangible, concrete ways. Again, from that classroom study, Dr. Lucy Pepiet, who's British, said this, Christians are quite good at that sort of Oh, well, we're all equal before God, but I can still treat you like rubbish. <laughs> I, it sounds cooler when she says it, I promise. Way more British. If we are truly the body of Christ, the temple of God, and dwell with the Holy Spirit, it should impact how we treat each other. And that's where Paul goes next. Chapter 12 ends like this. Remember, it's kind of arbitrary. It's not really there. His letter goes on this way. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. That picture of choosing. Eagerly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. And we begin chapter 13. A chapter of the Bible, a section of the Bible that we've probably heard countless times over the years at weddings as these doe-eyed newlyweds gaze into each other's eyes and hear these words spoken over them, and they think they've got a shot at actually experiencing that. It's so cute. But we need to view chapter 13 not through a wedding lens, but through a spirit lens, through a community lens, this is what the body of Christ looks like fully realized to a watching world. The opposite of the disunity and the, 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 the fighting that had marked them so distinctly. It's a spirit-empowered love, a love unlike anything the world had ever seen, unlike anything they were capable or that we are capable of doing of our own power. I invite you to listen to these words. These words that are so familiar, I invite you to listen anew. Maybe even in this moment, it feels weird, but maybe even in this moment, close your eyes and hear these words that describe not just a marriage, but more importantly, a community. Listen. Love is patient and kind. 
Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice. It rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstances. Can you even imagine living in a community like that where we're seeking the gifts of the Spirit and using those gifts to build up one another in love? A kind of love that, that, that we're not capable of. Just like the spiritual gifts are marked by being greater than we could ever possibly do by our own, on our own, this is a kind of love that just doesn't come easily for the people who are good at loving. This is a supernatural love that's dependent, empowered, and experienced only in and through the Holy Spirit. Are you pursuing love? Are you seeking desire and asking for spiritual gifts? Have you said yes to Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life? Because if you have, you have been or you will be given these gifts. Seek the gifts that build up the body, then use those gifts to build up the body. Let me pray for us. Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your story. We thank you for the fact that you've given us these examples of imperfect people who face so many of the same challenges, so many of the same confusions, so much of the same self-centeredness and self-absorption that we face. Help us, God, through the power of your word, through the power of your spirit, to grow in our knowledge of, of who you are, Holy Spirit, that we might not get to the end and say, I didn't know this was a possibility. I didn't know this was a reality. May we begin new and fresh ways to experience your Holy Spirit power, your Holy Spirit healing, your Holy Spirit courage, your Holy Spirit unity, even now as a community. And God, may we begin to model the kind of community that people from the outside look at and go, how, how do they do that? How do they face the kind of political pressures they're facing? How do they face the sort of cultural pressures that they're facing in a way that is so gracious? And so full of love. How do they love each other so radically in spite of their differences? I want a part of that. Holy Spirit, increasingly make that a reality in us, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.